Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hey team, our topic this week for our Grand Rounds curriculum is going to be CNS infections and HIV AIDS, so let's jump right into it. The first topic we're going to discuss is meningitis and encephalitis. This is going to be your patient that presents with fever, headache, altered mental status, and some nuchal rigidity. For board exam's sake, we'll review the specific physical exam findings that you learned in medical school. Brzezinski's sign is when you flex the patient's neck and this results in flexion of their knees and hips. The Koenig sign is listed by flexing the hip and then extending the knee, which should cause pain in a patient with nuchal rigidity. You may also find that the patient has a purpuric or petechial rash indicating Neisseria infection. We get plenty of patients that come to the ER with fever and headache. So how do you decide who gets a meningitis workup? Aside from the history and physical exam, here are some risk factors to consider to help in your diagnosis. If they've had a recent upper respiratory tract or sinus infection, if they are immunosuppressed, such as those with sickle cell, HIV, organ transplant, or Hodgkin's, if they've had any recent injury, such as head trauma or any neurosurgery or ENT procedures, if they have any indwelling catheter, such as a VP shunt, and if they have any close contacts that have history of meningitis. Diagnosis in children can be a little more difficult as they are unable to provide any history. The most helpful history and physical exam findings in children are a change in the child's affect and state of alertness. They may also have seizures with focal neurologic signs or ataxia as well as vomiting and excessive irritation. Excessive sleep and poor feeding may also be observed in infants. It is also important to evaluate the mother's birth history for any signs of pruritic or burning vaginal lesions, any antibiotic use during pregnancy, any ingestion of raw dairy products during pregnancy, any exposure to HSV, or any perinatal complications during the delivery. Additionally, you'll want to elicit the mother's GPS status. For the workup of meningitis, you'll want to consider doing a CT of the head to rule out any cerebral mass to avoid herniation during lumbar puncture. CT should be done in patients who have focal neurologic findings or signs of increase intracranial pressure such as papilledema. Once you determine that there's no intracranial mass, the next step is to perform a lumbar puncture. CSF fluid in bacterial meningitis will have a white blood cell count greater than 1,000 with a neutrophilic predominance, a low glucose less than 30, and a protein greater than 100. So low glucose, high protein, and neutrophilic predominance equals bacterial meningitis. Tuberculosis meningitis will have a similar CSF analysis. Viral meningitis will have a moderately elevated white blood cell count with a lymphocytic predominance, a high glucose, and a moderate to normal protein. It is important to start empiric antibiotic therapy as soon as possible, and the choice typically depends on the age of the patient. In babies under 30 days of age, the most common pathogens are group B strep, E. coli, and listeria. You'll want to cover them with ampicillin and gentamicin or cefotaxime. For babies one to three months of age, 
They have the added risk of strep pneumonia and Neisseria meningitis. So you'll want to give ampicillin and a third generation cephalosporin, such as rocephin or cefotaxime. Patients aged two years and up are at greatest risk for Neisseria and strep pneumonia. They need coverage with vancomycin plus rocephin or vanc plus meropenem. Don't forget to add acyclovir if you suspect HSV encephalitis based on the history. Other CNS infections to consider include brain abscess, epidural and subdural abscess, as well as spinal epidural abscess. Your intracranial abscesses are usually the result of contiguous spread from the oropharynx, the middle ear, or the paranasal sinuses. Otitis media and mastoiditis can typically spread to the temporal bone and sometimes even the cerebellum. Common pathogens are typically anaerobic species, but sometimes staph aureus or staph epidermidis can be isolated after post-traumatic or post-surgical procedures. The initial study of choice is going to be a CT head with contrast, followed by an MRI if a CT head is not conclusive and your suspicion is high enough. If the cause of the abscess is from trauma or surgery, you'll want to cover staph aureus and staph epidermis with vancomycin and a third generation cephalosporin. If you suspect spread either hematogenously or direct seeding from a sinus or ear infection, you'll want to cover for pseudomonas, anaerobes, and strep. For this, you can use penicillin G, a third generation cephalosporin, and flagell. Next, we'll talk about spinal epidural abscesses. These typically present with back pain, fever, and some kind of neurologic deficit. These patients will usually have a leukocytosis with an elevated ESR and CRP. You want to obtain an MRI with contrast if available at your institution. If not, a contrasted CT of the spine is also an option. The most appropriate antibiotic choice for these patients includes coverage against MRSA, as well as gram-negative bacilli. Your best options are vancomycin plus a third or fourth generation cephalosporin, such as cefepime or ceftazidime. Next, we'll talk about HIV-AIDS. Your patient in the ER may already have known HIV-AIDS with a prior CD4 count. Conversely, you may have a patient that presents with kind of generalized flu-like symptoms with no prior HIV testing. Earlier nonspecific symptoms also include mucocutaneous ulcers, oral thrush, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, or a rash. It is important to consider HIV testing in these patients, especially in the context of high-risk factors. The standard testing for HIV includes an ELISA test to detect the viral antibody. Positive ELISA tests are then confirmed by a Western blot. When you have a known HIV patient presenting to the ED with fever, it is of course important to consider all of the common pathogens that could be present. However, here we will review those specific to immunocompromised hosts. In patients with a CD4 count of greater than 500, the most common organisms are going to be TB and encapsulated bacteria such as strep pneumonia. Patients with a CD4 count of less than 200 are at a greater risk for PCP pneumonia. These patients typically present complaining of an insidious, non-productive cough, dyspnea on exertion, and unexplained fever with chest pain and fatigue over days to weeks. Chest x-ray will sometimes show ground glass opacity, 
but a chest CT may be warranted if you have a high suspicion with a negative chest x-ray. Additionally, you should obtain an LDH in the lab workup as this is elevated in 90% of the time. If you have a high suspicion for PCP, you should initiate treatment in the ED with Bactrim, either PO or IV, followed by prednisone or methylprednisolone steroid treatment. These patients will need to be admitted as respiratory failure from hypoxia is common. Tuberculosis should also be considered in patients with CD4 counts ranging from 200 to 500. They will classically present with a cough, sometimes with hemoptysis, fever, night sweats, and weight loss. The classic chest x-ray will show an upper lobe lesion with cavitation, sometimes pleural effusion with some mediastinal adenopathy and alveolar opacities. Diagnosis of TB is made by acid fast staining of a bronchiolar lavage sample. These, these patients need to be treated with four drug therapy, including rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Next, we'll talk about CNS infections and HIV-AIDS patients. Any patient with HIV presenting with altered mental status, coma, seizures, headache, or focal neurologic deficit, you should consider the following diagnoses. Progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML, cerebral toxoplasmosis, and cryptococcal meningitis. Toxoplasma gondii is the most common cause of focal intracranial mass lesions in patients with HIV. These patients typically have a CD4 count of less than 100 and present with fever, headache, and confusion. CT of the head will show ring-enhancing lesion, and these patients should be admitted for treatment, which includes pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and leucovorin, as well as steroids. Patients with a CD4 count less than 100 are also at risk for cryptococcal infections. Treatment for this disease is with amphotericin B. Other considerations include JC virus, which causes progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, as well as CMV and EBV-related lymphoma. While pulmonary and CNS infections are the most common and concerning presenting features of HIV patients, we'll also review other organ systems that can be involved. Oral pharyngeal lesions include thrush, usually caused by candida albicans, which can be treated with fluconazole. Hairy leukoplakia, typically caused by EBV, is a benign thickening of the borders of the tongue with hair-like projections. In contrast to candida, hairy leukoplakia cannot be easily scraped off the tongue. Patients presenting with odinophagia or dysphagia with a CD4 count less than 200 should be considered to have possible candidiasis or esophagitis with HSV or CMV. Diarrhea is also a common chief complaint of HIV patients. Patients with a CD4 count of greater than 250 can be considered in the same category as non-HIV patients with consideration of the same pathogens and supportive treatment. Patients with a lower CD4 count are at higher risk for infection with Cryptosporidium, Mycobacterium avium complex, CMV colitis, and Antamoeba histolytica. Dermatologic involvement is also common in HIV patients. Kaposi sarcoma is one of the most common HIV-associated malignancies caused by human herpes virus 8. They'll typically have lesions that are firm, purple, or black in color, 
We'll quickly review the HIV chemo prophylaxis based on CD4 count as this is commonly tested on board exams. For patients with a CD4 count of less than 200, they will need Bactrim for PCP prophylaxis. For patients with a CD4 count of less than 100, they are at a higher risk for toxoplasmosis. They will need Bactrim in addition to Dapsone, Pyrimethamine, and Leucovorin. And finally, with a CD4 count of less than 100, they are at risk for mycobacterium avium intracellular and will need to have either azithromycin or clarithromycin prophylaxis. Finally, we'll talk about botulism. Clostridium botulism is an anaerobic spore-forming gram-positive bacillus typically found in soil and water. Infant botulism is typically contracted through honey ingested by infants. It can also be contracted through improperly processed meats and vegetables. Presenting symptoms of botulism are typically gastrointestinal, including nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and distension. Neurologic involvement manifests as symmetric descending flaccid paralysis with signs such as diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, and upper extremity weakness. This is the result of the botulism toxin preventing the release of acetylcholine from neuromuscular receptors. The laboratory and radiographic workup for these patients is typically unremarkable, and this is a clinical diagnosis. Definitive diagnosis is made by a stool sample testing positive for the botulinum toxin. However, treatment should not be delayed based on obtaining this lab value. Initial treatment is supportive, especially monitoring airway given that the diaphragm can become paralyzed and a tracheal intubation may be necessary. Definitive treatment was with the hepavalent botulism antitoxin. This is for patients greater than one year of age. In infants, the human botulism immunoglobulin, or baby BIG, has been approved for treatment. And that concludes the review of curriculum for infectious disease portion of Grand Rounds tomorrow. See you all tomorrow in your ugly sweaters.